So here we are. You know what? We got to talk about that for a moment. Why? You'll know why. In fact, you do know why. You just don't realize it. But Yeah, because, um, yeah. Anyway, we always have a problem of having a way to introduce X podcast, which is what everybody's listening to right now. Um, I think it's episode 14 or, so, or is it 15? I don't remember. But hey, it's on the uh, podcast data. But I think I have a solution for this episode as to how to introduce it. Now, I will hand this over to you. Uh, here's a little script that I had generated by an artificial intelligence generator. So here's how it's going to go. Hello, everyone. This is Sean, and I'm joined today by my wonderful wife, Lisa, for another episode of Tune X Podcast, in which we share our love and obsession for the Beach Boys. Today, we're exploring a truly transformative year for the band, 1965. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with Sean to talk about one of our favorite years in the history of the Beach Boys. 1965 was a time of musical growth and artistic expression, and I can't wait to dive into the music and events of this period with all of you. There, that took care of everything. Sure. Artificially intelligence-generated podcast intro. Can't recommend it enough. Oh, so that's why it sounds like it was written by a sick leprechaun. Because it probably was. Yeah. Indeed. So, yeah, and uh, since the last time we recorded, in fact, this is just very recently, of course, we all know the news that it has been determined. By that, science. By science. That there are two Beach Boys songs. What What is it? The, the top 10 songs that scientifically make people happy? Yep. One of which makes me angry, actually. Yeah, but that's because you're you. And it's because of how I was raised, probably. But number one was Good Vibrations. Yep. And this came out right around the time of the 57th, was it 57th anniversary? Yeah. Of the first ever Good Vibrations of, se of session. Of the day, the day that somebody actually said, Good Vibrations, take one. Probably thinking, yeah, we'll get, we'll get through this in a couple takes and we'll be out of here in time for dinner. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll hear the song when it's on the radio. Yeah, yeah. It This is going to be easy. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but let's talk about that more on another day. Yeah. Because we could easily go on for a whole podcast just about good vibrations. Oh, my goodness. So let's stop ourselves before we yeah. get too crazy. Yeah. And um, one thing uh, we had, uh, those of you who listen to us regularly, you know that in our previous episode, which has been a while, but we're back, we had a special guest, David Leaf come to talk about his book and other things, Brian and non-Brian. And um, he recently reached out to me and he wanted me to uh, let everybody know that there's a new link for the Reader's Guide to God Only Knows, the story of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, the California myth. I think I got that backwards, actually. It's a long title. Do I have to do this all over again? <laughs> yes. Anyway, that link is in the show notes at uh, tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4it being spelled F-A-B and the number 4-I-T. And uh, that's our website. That's also where you're going to get the show notes. And speaking of which, finally, for well over a year, there has been a resources coming soon link on our webpage. It now no longer says coming soon. Because there are some actual resources there, external links where you can buy some books, visit some other online resources. It's a constant work in progress. And uh, just one more thing. I know I mentioned it before, but if you go to our website, 
assuming that <laughs> I put something in there every day, it'll tell you what happened on this day in Beach Boys history. So if there's more than one thing that happened on that day, it'll pull something out at random. So that's pretty nifty if you want to learn something as to what the Beach Boys and related stuff was happening back then. But in the meantime, as we both told you before, this episode, we're taking a look at what is probably the most transitional years in Beach Boys history, when things really started to ramp up in terms of creativity and whatever else have you. This is when the proverbial sh** gets real. We all know that proverb, right? <laughs> a lot was going on. And really, in our study and discussion of this to prepare for this podcast, we actually don't limit this to just the year 1965. The hell you say? We actually dial things back to June of 1964. So when you look at the scope of what was going on in 1965, you have to go back a little bit because that's where the roots of a lot of things happened. I think one of the reasons we went back to June 1964 is because at least in my mind, when I think Beach Boys 1965, I go in terms of albums. The Beach Boys Today, Summer Days, Summer Nights, and uh, Beach Boys Party, of course. The first thing that happened for all of that actually was in June of 64 when uh, the Beach Boys recorded Don't Hurt My Little Sister. Yep, June 22nd. So think about how so many people say that aside from Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys Today is their favorite Beach Boys album, and it's a very... Pet Sounds Clue E album, <laughs> an early clue to the new direction, as it were. Before I Get Around, it was even a number one hit, is mm -hmm. when they started working on this really transformative work. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting when you think about, I mean, what is this song about? Many sources speculate, and I think rightfully so, that it's one Rovell sister speaking to Brian about another Rovell sister. <laughs> I mean, the little sister could be Marilyn, but we don't really know for sure because, let's be honest, I think Brian was kind of interested in all of them at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for various reasons. Well, yeah, I mean, each of levels. them had something that Brian liked, that as a unique feature about their personalities, I think. Well, he also just liked them as singers, too. Well, that, too. That, too. And we know that he also really loved going over to their house, yeah. and their mom loved to cook for him. Good old man. <laughs> yep. And uh, by the way, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about Don't Hurt My Little Sister, and as I'm looking at our notes, we have something for just about every day. But we're not going to go day by day, yeah. song by song. We're not going to well, do it. Well, I think we have. But for, for just, some things. We have yeah. just cause for talking about this song Absolutely. first. Just because, again, it's the first song for a 1965 album that was recorded. And going with the assumption that it's about a Rovell, Brian was married to a Rovell sister by the time the year was out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's also, I think, a sign of a change in that the content of a lot of the songs was becoming more and more personal. Oh, yeah. As we go forward, there's not a lot of just random filler Moon in June kind of love songs. A lot of the material that Brian was putting together 
really had some kind of concrete reason behind it, which in itself is a big pet sound signpost. Oh, hell yeah. And it's just mind-blowing to think that Don't Hurt My Little Sister is intense as that song is, as personal as it is. That's from before Dance, Dance, Dance. Yeah. They recorded that before Brian, I think, even wrote Dance, Dance, Dance. It was before the Christmas album. And Well, that same, I was just going to say, that same week, they did a significant amount of work on the Christmas album. Yep. As well as um, a session for Little Honda. So other stuff was happening at that time that was kind of on the more lighthearted pop side where this undercurrent of things that were more serious, things more like that Brian had to get out was starting to come up. Oh, yeah. And I think we can safely skip uh, over all the rest of June because there's there's a lot of stuff going on in June, but skip over, I think, to something really important that you actually told me, make sure that this is in here, July 4th. What was significant about that day? Well, July 4th, 1964 was the day that I Get Around hit number one, the Beach Boys' first number one hit. Mm -hmm. And what I feel is quite significant about it is that they hit number one in the summer of Beatlemania at a time when there were Beatles records all over the charts. A Hard Day's Night was coming out. The Beatles were getting ready to, they had already done some concerts here in the United States. They were preparing to come back later in the summer and early fall. I mean, everybody was going crazy over the Beatles. I mean, even, was it Lauren Green had a number one hit <laughs> with a song like a Western themed song? It was one of those talking things called Ringo. He lay face down on the desert sand, clutching a six gun in his hand. Shot from behind, I thought he was dead, for under his heart was an ounce of lead. But a spark still burned, so I used my knife, and late that night, I saved the life of Ringo. Ringo. It had nothing to do with Ringo Starr, but yet everybody goes bananas and buys this record. Well, the thing is, it was already old at the time. It came out a year or two before, but once this group with the drummer called Ringo came out, they're like, hmm, let's see if we can capitalize on this. Yeah, I mean, that was was smart. Very brilliant. I mean, nothing against Lauren Green, but I mean, it's just kind of funny. So here in the summer of 1964... On 4th of July. How beautiful is that? And number one for two weeks, I believe. That the Beach Boys hit number one. And I once, actually, years ago, I actually did a little research on this. I think they were the only American band, not act, I'm excluding singing groups or solo artists. I'm talking actual band, guitar, drums, bass. Yep. I think they were the only American band that came anywhere near the Beatles. That is huge. Yeah, right around that time, A Hard Day's Night was only a few weeks away in the theaters, too. So I think they came out with I Get Around at just the right time. If they had waited a little bit longer, they might not have had that number one hit. But it is well documented amongst the universe 
that you don't care for I Get Around, but even yeah. you can admit I, that I that admit, song- It deserved its number one hit That song status. is nothing but hook. It, it truly <laughs> is. I mean, if you were going to put out something to try to get it to number one, that was it. And it's yes. almost like a sampler of everything that Brian and the Beach Boys had to offer, that it had the harmonies, it had a driving beat. Yes, it's a car song, but it's also kind of a declaration of independence, like wanting to kind of break free from things, which I think was where Brian's head was at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just so much to it. I mean, I remember my father telling me hearing that song when he first got home from the Navy, and it just blew his mind. And that that's what kind of sealed the deal for him in terms of the Beach Boys. He's like, I got to check these guys out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when you look at the timeline of the Beach Boys, when I Get Around was number one, they were on day two of 22 straight oh, days of concerts, 23, actually. In those 23 days, they did 32 concerts. They did not have a single day off. On uh, July 4th, by the way, they were at the Honolulu International Center for the second night of a two-night stay there. Yeah, it is a grueling schedule where they did not have a day off for most of July. Yeah. Many dates, they played two shows in one day. Keep in mind that this was back long before what artists have today, where they have, if they're not traveling by air, they have the very comfortable, luxurious tour buses where you can actually get a good night's sleep and you have places to put your stuff and you have kitchenette, a table to sit at. I mean, it's probably not as great as a good hotel room or your own house, but it's certainly much more comfy than the accommodations that they probably had back then, which was like, what, a station wagon, maybe? Oh, I think they, they would have upgraded from a station wagon back yeah, then. Yeah, but I mean, but they did still, not have- Still, you're at the mercy of a, of a vehicle that, if it breaks down, you're screwed. They did not have luxurious tour buses yeah. where you could actually- I mean, they were sleeping, leaning on each other in a back seat. Oh, yeah. And- you could say, oh, those guys were young. and I mean, yeah, youth probably helped, but still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, a couple of Even them were still teenagers. Even young people need a nice bed to sleep in, and so they were probably getting shut-eye on the road, not having any clue where they were. <laughs> yeah, and uh, jumping a little bit ahead just for a moment, when I was looking at this and I, I noticed, wait a minute, they don't have a single day off. I'm thinking, number one, I don't blame Brian for having a breakdown. <laughs> and number two, I'm surprised he's the only one. And you also keep in mind that they weren't just showing up in a city, playing a concert, and that's it. They still had to do, I'm sure, local media, radio station interviews or newspaper interviews. They had to meet the mayor's daughter or whoever. Oh, yeah. Like They had to do publicity stuff. They had to do sound checks. And... They had to find time to eat and shower and shave and use the bathroom. And I mean, they their days were probably very full of all kinds of activities that probably got very repetitive. Because I mean, how many mayor's daughters can you meet? How many DJs do you sit down with who ask you the same questions over and over? Yeah. 
Yeah, which is why a lot of groups, including the Beach Boys, had these open-ended interview records that they shipped out to radio stations. Mm -hmm. They would actually take an existing interview, cut out the uh, interviewer's questions, and send a script to the radio stations Hmm. so that DJs could actually fake interview them. There's, I think, at least one Beach Boys open-ended interview floating around out there somewhere. So that kind of might have helped at some point. But going back to that grueling 23 straight days of 32 concerts, you mapped out where they went during those 23 days. It's just like, holy Yeah, I mean, bouncing around. I mean, it wasn't like they were traveling in a straight line. No. They were going from, you know, here to there to back through the same city multiple times. And yeah, I mean, that's... They went from Hawaii to Arizona to New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, back to Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, back to Wisconsin, specifically Madison, which is kind of in the middle of the state. And uh, it takes a while to get from the border to Madison, then down to Chicago, and then back up to La Crosse, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. which is way the heck up north in Wisconsin. So when you really look at things, I mean, they had session time on June 30th. They did not see, Brian was not in a recording studio again until August 5th. And even still, they had, like on August 5th, they worked on When I Grew Up to Be a Man and She Knows Me Too Well. Now that's that's a day's work. Yeah. <laughs> but that night... They had a concert in Burbank, so they did a pretty significant recording session and then still had to do a show. Yeah, thank God it was just in Burbank, which is just down the street from Hollywood, really. And then again on August 8th, they did some more work on She Knows Me Too Well, and then two concerts in San Diego. San Diego is 100 miles south of LA. Yeah, it's like a two, two and a half hour drive. Yeah, I don't think they had a charter plane yet at that point. I have to wonder if that that whole stretch of time having more than a month away from a recording studio, Brian must have been getting the shakes. I know. <laughs> and also in that time on July 13th, this album that I'm holding up to the microphone so our listeners can see it, All Summer Long came out. I brought visual aids just in case we needed some oh, is prompting that the, here. Uh, oh, that's the Don't Break it's Down It's the Don't Break one. Down. Yeah. A quick way to tell if it's Don't Break Down is if the song list on the front is in a beige color. If it's black, it's Don't Back Down. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't care what anybody says. Don't Break Down copies are not that hard to find. No, they are not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I see the record rolled out of this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but- it's, yeah. Well... Hey, it's it it's, survived this long. It it's survived, a hardy record. Yeah, it survived almost sixty years. It'll There's be fine. There's a lot fine. of good stuff on yeah. that record. And with uh, photos taken in Malibu at Paradise Cove. Ooh. Yeah, with lots of models. None of them. I don't. Th- I don't think any of these were their significant others. But and keep in mind, there was a stretch of what'd you say, twenty-one days without a break. Twenty-three or twenty-three days. They still maybe only had. A day or two off. It's not like they had a nice week off. Yeah. Because the concert still went on until pretty much the beginning of, no, well into September. I'm scrolling through our lengthy document. (laughs) Yeah. And included in that is uh, their two concerts they did in Sacramento, which became the basis for the Beach Boys concert album. And then when you also consider that 
the All Summer Long record came out during this time. Yep. And the uh, When I Grew Up to Be a Man, She Knows Me Too Well single came out in, on August 24th. They also had to do, not in addition to doing local publicity for their concerts, they probably also had to do some capital business yep. to like nationwide promotions. Capital records, we were saying. Yeah, nationwide promotions for these releases. And whatever else have you, and also have time to just stop and eat. Yeah. <laughs> to like, I hope. To like eat or see their wives and girlfriends, like maybe go to somebody's wedding or, yeah. or birthday party. <laughs> I mean, just like, just like have a life. Yeah. You know, like in Mickey Dolenz's book, um, he talks about when the monkeys started and the crazy schedule that they had of doing the TV show, recording yeah. studios, publicity, all the things where, and Mickey tells a story of going to the shopping mall that he's gone to his whole life to do some Christmas shopping and nearly being killed by a stampede of girls who recognized him because he had been so busy that he had no idea that the show was popular, that the records were hits. Yep. Like he had no idea and had never dealt with this before in his life. So it's like he didn't even have time to process it all and enjoy it. Like to actually sit and enjoy mm -hmm. the success. Yep. I mean, that's kind of sad, actually. Yeah. All that they had to do while on the road, away from their comforts of home, and God knows what else. And I feel sorry for God for knowing what else. <laughs> But uh, one thing interesting that I noticed when we go into September, they were in Nashville on September 22nd, 1964. And uh, they had, what was the uh, schedule like in Nashville for that day? They had. Uh, well, they had a concert that night. Yes. Okay. At the uh, Municipal Auditorium. But they, during the day, they went into Columbia Records Studio in Nashville to record Dance, Dance, Dance. Yeah, it's not the single version that we all know and love, but it's the bonus track version from the twofer. Because Brian, if I understand correctly, Brian and Carl and possibly Mike had just written it, and Brian wanted to hurry up and get that thing down. So they went into a studio. Yeah. They booked six hours in the studio. Well, like I said, he Brian probably was having the shakes at that time. Yeah, like, right. I gotta record something. <laughs> I need to be behind a board. Well, just a few days earlier, they recorded all dressed up for school. Yeah. And, and it sat unreleased until 1990. Yeah, I was going to say, where did that go? <laughs> but yeah, in September, they had a full schedule, too. They're all over the place. Uh, looks like a lot of dates in the Northeast. They had uh, New York, Massachusetts, and they went over to Utah after they recorded I'm So Young on September 9th. They're just bouncing all over the to, country. Then they were down in the South. Yeah. Miami, Alabama. Back East? Yeah. Good Lord. Then Atlanta, Knoxville. And again, in the midst of that, another release, Four by the Beach Boys. Yep. That EP came out. So they had to probably promote that as well. Well, they already were doing Wendy and Don't Back Down and Hushabye. All three of those songs were on uh, that EP. Uh, I don't remember the fourth one because in my notes, I accidentally typed Wendy twice. Mm -hmm. But they were definitely already doing that in concert because they recorded that at the Sacramento show. And here's an interesting date. September 23rd, 
they did a concert in Virginia at the Alexandria Roller Rink. Uh-huh. So just the fact that the Beach Boys were doing a concert at a roller rink. And they had a number one hit with no end in sight to their string of hits. Well, but and they're the doing thing, a roller rink. Well, to be fair, keep in mind back then, a venue was a venue. I mean, they True. didn't really they didn't really have cushy places to play. I mean, we've seen a bunch of like high school auditoriums and I mean, why not have a concert at a place where kids go? That's true. I mean, it probably was a good place to have a show, but it still is just funny to see that because <laughs> you picture like <laughs> And it's like they're right across the road from Washington DC and they're playing a roller rink. <laughs> Again, it might have been let's bring the music to the kids. Could be. But the fun fact, one of the other acts on this bill was the Mugwumps. The Mugwumps. Who became what? They evolved into the Mamas and the Papas. (laughs) Kind of interesting. So they played a roller rink, too. (laughs) Um, And then just two days after the roller rink, they were in New York City to rehearse for the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, and that's after going to Providence. So they, they went way up north and then back down south a little bit. So yeah, Ed Sullivan show, they rehearsed. The rehearsal was the 25th. They actually did the broadcast on the 27th. And I think that's the famous one when there's a close-up on Carl's (laughs) fingers and he screws up the intro to Wendy. (laughs) And you know that... The big moment. Oh, no! And you know that while the whole time that they're performing, Carl is thinking, I'm going to die. Because (laughs) he has an older brother who is much larger and more athletic than him. And another older (laughs) brother who will be all too happy to help. (laughs) So you know that uh, Brian probably held him down and sat on his face and farted or something. Yeah, and you're talking about how the Beach Boys would play anywhere. Well, between those two Sullivan dates, they went across the Hudson to West Orange, New Jersey. Not a far hike, really. And played at an armory. Well, I mean, again, that's a well, big probably for the military. That's a big yeah. hall. Or, yeah. yeah, I mean, it could have been a military show, or that could have just been where they were booked. And and I mean, let's make it clear: we're not making it sound like the Beach Boys were just playing any venue that they could get because they were desperate or something. I think this is what every band out there was doing. They were playing whatever venue they could get booked in because that's how you made your money and you that's how you brought music to the kids yeah and also i don't remember if it was in in mike's book or somewhere else when mike was talking about how back in their early days they would play these really oddball places where people usually don't get to see rock and roll acts Mm -hmm. and he said they kind of use that strategy again in more recent years like starting in the late 90s well yeah like the balloon festival and that weird place <laughs> yeah in north jersey and i, I mean it makes said, why total not sense. why not bring the music to, to these people who don't really can't really get to a major city that or much who don't have like a fancy highfalutin theater in yeah. the town i mean again if, as long as you can set up your amps and plug stuff in mm-hmm. let's have a show why not <laughs> also i'm guessing that back then there may not have been as many restrictions in regards to uh, unions. Yeah. Where, like, nowadays you have to play a venue that has union technicians or you have to have union technicians on hand. And there's probably a lot more regulations in terms of 
just to make sure that um, everything is up to code, that the you oh, know, yeah. that you're not going to like cause a blackout in the city by plugging in a whole bunch of amps oh, yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, they probably didn't have as much regulations and restrictions back then. So yeah, I mean, you could go into just any old place and carry your gear. Mm-hmm. So October was really big, I think. Well. It was big, but it wasn't as grueling. Exactly. They must have, somebody must have like freaked out on them (laughs) because they actually, or somebody forgot to schedule something because they gave them like some time off by accident. (laughs) Well, we keep saying, well, while they're going to where the kids are, well, where are the kids in October? They're in school. Well, true, but. July, they're not in school. So October started with. Again, they probably did take some time off and slept for a solid week, yeah. but then they started some heavier work. Dance, dance, dance on the 9th, and Guess I'm Dumb on the 14th. Yeah, yeah, with uh, Brian, Carl, the Honeys, and uh, of course, the Wrecking Crew, and- Glenn Campbell. Uh, Glenn Campbell, that's right. I knew there was somebody I was missing. So then they had a bunch more shows. In the midst of that, Beach Boys concert was released- Something just occurred. Okay, remind me when we get around to December that something occurred to me. Okay. But anyway, go on. Well, we have Beach Boys concert came out that month, which went to number one. Yep. And the Dance, 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 Warmth of the Sun single also Mm -hmm. came out that month. And did not go to number one. No, but it did well. And then October ends with the Tammy show. Oh, yeah. Which is now out on DVD. Well, it's been out on DVD for a while. Yeah. Oh my! If you have not seen the whole Tammy show, it is a it's a hell of a show to watch. It really is. Yeah. It's like the hosts are Jan and Dean. Yep. And they also kind of have the little theme song of the Tammy show. Yeah. What's it called? Like all around, all Rockin over the world, all over or the something? world, or something. But it's got pretty stellar lineup. You've got the Rolling Stones. You've got James Brown. James Brown's set kicked so many asses. Oh, my God. Oh. I mean, you pretty much have everybody who's not the Beatles. Yeah, and you had <laughs> Leslie Gore in Santa Monica wearing what looked like this big winter coat. <laughs> I know, because she's so New Jersey. <laughs> and I believe Terry Gar was one of the Go-Go Yeah, dancers, that's right? right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. I felt bad for the people performing at that thing because the Go-Go dancers were getting up in everybody's faces. It's like, man, they should have just shoved them out of the way. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's a pretty awesome show, and the Beach Boys yeah. were one of the the top acts, one of the headliners for it. So yeah. it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think what it was, they spent two days rehearsing, and the second day of rehearsal was also the first day of filming, mm-hmm. and then there was another day of filming. Word got out as to what hotel the artists were staying at. Oh boy! And of course, what happens in 1964 when teenagers find out their idols? who are not the Beatles, but still their idols, are in town. They're going to find them out. So they ended up spending their second night over at the actual auditorium instead of the hotel. Oh, man. Just to keep away from everybody. And then right on the heels of that, they have to fly to London. Oh, to man. To kick off their European tour. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the flight was October 31st, which was a Saturday. And uh, the flight had to be diverted to Shannon Airport in Ireland because of fog. And while they were waiting for their flight to resume to London, they bump into a guy named Brian Epstein. Yep. 
or as some people say, Epstein, but whoever, but they chatted with him for a little bit. I don't know if anything significant happened as a result or if they got any fancy knowledge or whatever, but the fact is they crossed paths and met and talked in a transit lounge. And I do love this note we have here that on November 1st, they arrived in London to a Beatles-like reception. Yeah. I love that they were heartily greeted by British fans. Because remember, the Beach Boys were a fairly new thing in in the UK. The records didn't come out at the same time that they came out here in the United States. Oh, yeah. So, 64 is really when the interest really started for uh, the Beach Boys. And it's almost a, a different timeline that they're late what we consider the later records came out first and the surf records didn't come out until sometime later yeah not much later but later enough that to us americans and how we know of how their music evolved that was a world of difference probably so but the fact is the english people liked it pretty much their first bunch of days in the UK was a lot of television appearances were filmed for uh, both, well, both the UK and for Paris. And then they started performing concerts. And while they were there, they recorded some songs for BBC Radio, which have since been released. Uh, I think a couple of them made it to the Made in California archival release, and a couple of more were on. I believe one of the 1964 copyright extension releases. I don't know which one off the top of my head. That's the thing about these copyright extensions. There are so many of them. Like there are some years when there are multiple ones and it's mm-hmm. hard to keep track of which ones on yeah. which. Good Lord. That's a good problem to have if you're a fan, I got to say. Yeah. An embarrassment of riches. Yep. And of course, while they were in England, there was also yet another album release. This was, let's see, their fourth album from 1964 right here, the Beach Boys Christmas album. And the Man With All The Toys single came came out out. on November 9th. That was both the same day, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Brian was hoping to have another Little St. Nick. It was not quite as successful. I think it was a little bit of a hit, but uh, what's that you discovered? What might have been a possible, in, or what was definitely an influence for part of The Man With All The Toys? Um, I suddenly forgot the name of it. It was a single released on Atco Records by Nino Temporal and April Stevens. Yeah. Or is it Nino Stevens? Yeah. And a- okay. But what was the title? Deep Purple. Okay. Not the band Deep Purple. Yeah. But a song called Deep Purple. Listen to it, because near the end... They do the... Well, you know what? We can drop a a few seconds of it here and get away with it. They do the... Up! The The thing that I hate about that song... (laughs) Because I first uh, heard that on, on the Sirius XM 60s channel, and I'm like... Oh my God, this yep. can, and it's like the timing, I mean, because it came out, that song came out uh, sometime in 1963. Yep. So Brian definitely would have heard it. And we know he heard it because he also recorded it for adult child. Mm. So a more, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically in a version that Murray Wilson would like with uh, Dick Reynolds so, strings and everything. So they came back and did more concerts, more work. And then in the middle of all of this, 
On December 7th. Oh, yes. Brian and Marilyn got married. Yes. So in the midst of all this craziness. Yeah. Now, I'm going to link this in the show notes if I can find it again. But there was an article from, I believe, a Houston newspaper detailing that tumultuous fall and early winter that Brian had. And the story was that, according to the guy they were talking to, was... When the Beach Boys were on their way to Australia in November, Brian had the pilot radio down and have Marilyn called and told her, Brian wants you to wait by the phone because he's going to call you when he lands. And at that point, when they landed, he called her and proposed. Of course, the problem with that is the Beach Boys did not go to Australia in November. They went in January, right after they recorded Fun, Fun, Fun. So it might have been before they left for England, mm. or it might have been that Brian and Marilyn had been engaged for that long. That much, I don't know. And see, it's interesting, because we really spent some time talking about this and even asking a couple people who know more, a lot more than we do. Mm-hmm. And for all the books that we've read, the documentaries, all the material we've absorbed over many, many years of fandom, we've never seen any real information about Brian and Marilyn's wedding. Like, we have no idea where it happened, if they went to the courthouse. I'm guessing that's what they did. somebody came to the house to like Marilyn's house and they had a little something in the backyard. There has never been a photo, any photo. Published at least. We have no idea. I mean, we don't even know for sure if they were even actually engaged. Like if Brian gave her a ring. And it's just kind of crazy and interesting that even just recently in Endless Summer Quarterly, there was a whole article that gave a lot of information about uh, Carl's marriage to um, Annie Hinchy, like some pictures and some information like that. I yeah. mean, we don't even know if like was like Carl or Dennis Brian's best man. Like I th- we, have, I think it's generally agreed that Carl was, but we have no idea. And it's just there's so many other things that have been found out, researched, talked about, and nothing has ever come to the surface about this. Yeah. I find that. I mean, yeah, you could say, well, it's none of your business. but it, I Of mean, course not, yeah. But But still, it's still curious, you know. It's just like, because Brian marrying Marilyn was, I think, a key part of this whole timeline. I mean, it's just yeah. a little weird that, because even in like, there are some people who say, oh, here's a picture from their wedding. No, it's not. It was not, from a friend's wedding, it was I think. Like, yeah, it was like. Or, or, or another relative or something. Because like, Brian was in a suit or a tuxedo. Marilyn's really dressed up, but she was probably a bridesmaid. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the only thing that we we've heard documented, and God knows how accurate it was, was Brian was in a hurry to marry Marilyn, especially after he thought he saw Mike kind of flirting with her or she was flirting with Mike or yeah. something. Uh, one story I heard was that they did that just to, as, a, as a little joke to kind of bring Brian out of a little slump or something, which, of course, would not have been a good idea, I don't think. Or it just may have been something totally innocent and yeah, playful. And might have been and misinterpreted. Brian totally took it the wrong yeah. way. But, but again, there are so many other episodes in the yeah. Beach Boys canon that we found out later is not like stories that get repeated over and over 
we find out it's not quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. One other thing that I was able to find out is apparently December 7th was not the original time they were going to get married. Apparently, Brian and Marilyn had gone to get married a day or two earlier. Mm. But for God knows what reason, Brian never thought to bring any kind of legal ID with him. <laughs> so he had to go home, make sure he had his, he had his driver's license or something. Yeah. Huh. And that's why it happened on December 7th and not, say, December 5th or 6th. So, wow. On the anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. Huh. Wow. So then we get into later December. Okay, now that we're in December, what's the thing that you... We'll get to that a little bit later in December. But December wasn't really terribly busy at first. It was just a couple of appearances here and there. But things start to get a little bit interesting. Uh, December 16th, they recorded Kiss Me Baby for the Beach Boys Today, which Brian had written in Copenhagen sometime between November 22nd and 24th. Uh, I'm not able to pin down a more exact date, if anybody knows for sure. Uh, Listen to our announcements at the end of the show for ways to contact us uh, or reach out to us on Facebook or whatever. December 18th was uh, a Bob Hope comedy special recorded in Burbank, of course, for NBC. And this is when things start to take a little bit of a turn. There was a concert scheduled for Assembly Center in Tulsa on the 19th, and then another one scheduled for Little Rock, Arkansas, both of those concerts ended up being canceled due to an ill band member. We don't know who that band member was. We can only guess who it was. But moving forward, they fly from Little Rock to Houston on December 21st. And uh, that was Carl's 18th birthday. Yes. Yeah. Now, despite popular report that this all happened on December 23rd, new evidence has come to light in the last couple of years that it actually happened on December 21st, when in the flight, the big breakdown incident, the panic attack, the anxiety attack, whatever you want to call it. Some people say, well, it wasn't a breakdown. It was a panic. Whatever. Brian had an episode that was pretty disturbing. Yeah. I have to wonder if it was a genuine, real panic attack, like a real mental episode, or... Did Brian put on an act? I think I'm the one who put that in your head. Did I not? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I. I. don't know if that was just something. I have all can, kinds of controversial theories. I mean, you have to wonder if Brian. You know, especially when you look back at the kind of schedule that they had and how recording studio time had to be fit in here, there, and everywhere. If Brian maybe staged something. Like, figured I have to do something big. I mean, because we don't know if Brian had maybe been thinking about this. If Brian had kind of floated the idea like, hey, guys, can we schedule things so that I have more time at home in the recording studio? No, 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 we have to do this. I mean, we don't know. And Brian may have been kind of almost at the point of desperation and figured, okay, if I have, like, if I can stage a meltdown that might make people sit up and take notice and take me seriously. I have to wonder. I have to wonder too, especially because that whole time that Brian was with the guys in 1964 and late 63, he didn't want to be there. The only reason he was there was because of the famous, I hate you, Murray. I quit (laughs) incident. 
because of David Marks, he had to go back out on the yeah. road because whom else did they have? Mm-hmm. I, I'll bet you anything. Brian spent a lot of that time telling people, look, find someone else to play bass for you and to sing my parts. Yeah. And he maybe thought, okay, if I do something big and if I am unable, then maybe they will do this. Yeah. I mean, if that was Brian's plan, dude, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> But really, after researching this episode and see, like this podcast episode, I mean, and just seeing how grueling their schedules mm-hmm. were, I'm starting to think, yeah, I don't think he did stage it. I think well, that was real, especially because apparently it was not the first time he had a panic attack. I think that was the first time it was really as big as it yeah, was. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of both. I don't know. It could but- be, but... Uh, whatever the case was, that same article I mentioned before, again, I'll try to link it on our show notes... The person they talked to, I don't remember his name off the top of my head. He said that Brian played that night in Houston. He said he would never know anything was wrong. But Brian backstage, you could tell something was not quite right with him. Like he was just kind of gazing off into space and kind of not interacting with anybody and just kind of looking not quite right. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know that. Ron Swallow, I don't know, I think it was the next day Ron Swallow flew back with Brian to L.A. and then flew to Dallas with Glenn Campbell, yeah. who filled in with him. Yeah. For Brian, I mean. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> people, people listening to us right now, make sure you're sitting down right now, especially if you're a really big, diehard Brianista. Sit down. Okay, you're sitting? Good. Okay. What was the name of the venue that they were playing at the night mm. of the famous <laughs> nervous breakdown. Oh boy. Yeah. The music hall. A costly bow. The music all is lost for now. Oh god. <laughs> oh. oh goodness. Oh man. Yeah, it's this is why we do this work, people. <laughs> yeah. Cause that that just made us that that ended our night right there. Yeah, But seriously, <laughs> the generally agreed upon story was that it was Houston one night, Dallas the next. If it were December 23rd, as widely reported, going back to at least Heroes and Villains, the book by Stephen Gaines, that would have meant that the Dallas show was Christmas Eve. Which would not have it happened. It would not have happened. And especially because recently people have produced ticket stubs advertising December 22nd as the Dallas mm-hmm. concert date. And what I find weird is that nobody said, oh, yeah, we were, I remember that well. That was Carl's 18th birthday. Yeah. And apparently Mike had no idea what was going on because he thinks he was sitting in a different part of the plane. Hmm. He didn't know until, I think, after they landed that Brian had this freak out. And that brings me to this. The widely told story is that Brian recorded Guess I'm Dumb for Glenn Campbell as a thank you for filling in for him. When, of course, that was several months before... Which brings me to this. I'm jumping way ahead. That was only the backing track they recorded. Oh, true. So it could have been that Brian recorded that for later use Mm. and then later on decided, hey, Glenn, can you sing this? True. Glenn Campbell may have not even been a consideration. That may have been like a Beach Boys track. Ha. So yeah, December 22nd was the first show with Glenn Campbell. So then they did... A couple more shows over uh, the time right after Christmas and into 65. Yeah. And around this time, Brian probably sat down with the the guys and said, look, I need to take a break from the road. 
I need to stay in the studio. Well, yeah, which is exactly what happened then, because Glenn Campbell was playing dates for quite a while then. So then we see, starting January 7th, a whole bunch of prolific things start happening Good because grief. Brian, Brian was at home. Brian was where he wanted to be, and he yeah. he knocked out. Please let me wonder. Uh, help me, Rhonda. Do you want to dance? Good to my baby. The original Help Me, Rhonda. That in is. the back of my mind, like. Well, of course, the Beach Boys were there too because they were, there were no tour dates or anything. Well, yeah, but still, it's like Brian could get down to work. He didn't have to just get a bunch of sessions done knowing he had to get back out on the road in a couple days and then there's one thing that i added to our notes yeah, that i, I wanted to mention before yeah there's one reason i'm putting this here and it's really just beach boys myth busting anybody who saw i just wasn't made for these times the documentary about brian from 1995 there was a talking head with uh, david crosby and graham nash and graham nash was talking about how andrew lou goldham the rolling stones manager put out a full page ad proclaiming the greatness of pet sounds well Andrew Doe, who is the author of a couple of Beach Boys books, and he knows his stuff. He, he researches, he talks to the right people. He was asked to find that ad for the Pet Sound Sessions that came out in 1996. He couldn't find it. And the reason he couldn't find it, it never happened. What the ad was, was Andrew Lou Goldham proclaiming the greatness of the Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Hmm. A big theory about that is because the Righteous Brothers and Scylla Black's versions both came out at roughly the same time, and supposedly Andrew Logoldham, or is it Logue? Because I know M-O-O-G is Moog. But, <laughs> but anyway, he apparently had this vendetta against Brian Epstein, and Scylla Black was one of Brian Epstein's acts, so he was trying to like make sure that the Righteous Brothers had the bigger hit. <laughs> And they did. I think Silla Blacks only went to number two in England. Yeah. Righteous Brothers went to number one. There was no such ad for pet sounds. It was for You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. So that came out in a magazine with the issue date of January 16th. Now, it's not necessarily the same day that it was released. It was just the issue date. And uh, so putting that out there for all to hear. And that was published in Record Mirror. And it was not a full page ad. It was only a quarter of a page ad. Anyway. The Beach Boys headed back on out on the road, and there were some dates with Brian. Yeah. But he wasn't at all the dates. He probably just flew out, joined with them for a couple dates. I'm assuming these were dates Glenn Campbell wasn't available. I think that's exactly what the case was. So that was probably still something Brian could deal with. Yeah, and that was all in the Northeast United States, like New Jersey, Rhode Island, and places like that. And then also, like in March... The Airy Crown Theater in Chicago. Yeah. Brian was at those shows. And there's a reason for that. It's because there, there are three shows that Brian did in March, and that was the two at the Airy Crown Theater, and there was another one in Cincinnati. The reason that Brian was there was because they were recording those concerts for possible release. Now, by that time, Bruce Johnston had started to join the group, but he could not be on the recordings because it would be a conflict of interest with his contract with, I think, Columbia. So he couldn't be on any other recordings until his contract lapsed. So Brian had to come out and do those concerts. Now, I don't know if the Cincinnati concert exists anywhere. I'm guessing it was lost somewhere. But the two Chicago concerts at the Erie Crown Theater, that is available. That was in the uh, 2015 copyright extension release. And uh, I got to say, if they were, if they really were serious about putting that out as a concert album, they would have had a lot of 
overdub sessions and stuff because there was there were so many flaws in that some balance problems uh there are a lot of vocals missing brian forgot half the lyrics of don't worry baby at the first show <laughs> well, what are the words oh, what she does to me. i wrote the song too and um and i'm just gonna show lisa what mccormick place looked like at the time yeah yep because about uh two years after they performed there mccormick place burned down and they had to rebuild it a few years later and what was interesting if you listen to those mccormick place shows you hear mike talk about how a friend of theirs who moved to la from chicago was working with them named terry sachin and he always talks about how how cool chicago is how tough chicago is so that was interesting. And we all know, of course, Terry Sachin for I Know There's an Answer. He rewrote the Hang On to Your Ego lyrics. He was one of the road managers. Thought that was fascinating. So we go through early 65. You know, we have uh, Do You Want to Dance came out on February 15th, backed with Please Let Me Wonder. And then the Beach Boys Today album came out on March 8th. And I know and you wanted to spend some time talking oh about God. this. The world's worst album cover. Like, whoever is the graphic artist who put together the Beach Boys Today cover needs to be taken outside and beaten with a rake. <laughs> because first of all, they didn't even do a new photo shoot. It was the same photo shoot it's from the same shoot that they did for the christmas album because they're wearing the same sweaters actually no they're not oh they aren't well no not because look at that they're wearing different colored sweaters okay well they're still wearing freaking sweaters when you think beach boys do you think sweaters no and there was what looks like a ladder going into a pool. Yes, yeah, so they were probably sitting on a diving board. Yeah. And also and just typical of American album releases that these are album covers are meant to be advertisements in America. So they're the Beach Boys today and it lists the songs plus three more great new songs written by Brian Wilson. Yeah, the three songs not listed are I have to look at it and I don't want to waste too many times, but two of those songs, great new songs written by Brian Wilson weren't written by Brian. One was Bull Session with the Big Daddy, which is not a song. Yeah. And it's written by everybody participating. It's more like a improvised yeah. thing. It's not really written. And another one of those three great new songs written by Brian Wilson I'm So Young, a cover that Brian had nothing to do yeah. with writing. <laughs> and then you have like this brown band across the bottom. It's like, it is, oh, it's just so horrible. It's like, what? yeah, there's this big brown emptiness below their torsos. Like, yeah. What were they doing that you couldn't show the rest of them? And that they had to like crop the picture like that. Yeah, it's and the ridiculous. sun's obviously in their eyes because yeah. they're squinting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really terrible. Yeah, and basically, it's it's one reason some people say that Beach Boys album covers are inversely proportional to the quality of well, the yeah. music. I mean, you look at Summer in Paradise, that's a beautiful album cover. MIU album, too, with a big wave. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful artwork, but the album sucks. <laughs> so, during this time, Brian's really getting into some heavy stuff because oh, yeah. Let Him Run Wild... Is being worked on the other version of Help Me Rhonda, Salt Lake City, in between concerts that Brian had to run out to. But if you look at the schedule, it's far more forgiving. It's not not as many shows in a row. They have some TV appearances in there. Oh. I mean, it's it's nowhere near as horrible. <laughs> Something just occurred to me. 
What? Bruce's first show with Beach Boys was April 9th, which was after the Airy Crown Chicago concert. So Brian didn't fly out because of Bruce sticking to his contract with Columbia because that wasn't an issue. I so, so that's that another mystery. Been a Glenn Campbell so, thing. I don't know. And then we start to see in the schedule too where there's a concert someplace, but also recording going on. So Brian yep. was back home, like say for instance, April 14th. Uh, the Beach Boys were in Fort Lauderdale while Brian was doing the backing track of Amusement Parks USA. Yep. Time well spent. Mm-hmm. Oh, why don't you talk about what you discovered about April 25th? April 25th. Oh, yeah. There was a concert scheduled, and I believe tickets were sold for a Beach Boys concert on April 25th at Kearney Hall at Kansas State College in Pittsburgh, Kansas. The day before, they were at the Washington Coliseum. You really think they're going to go all the way to Kansas from Washington, D.C., for one thing? No, because they had no idea that somebody had booked them at that venue. I don't remember the name of the person, but it's uh, in the book, The Beach Boys in Concert, co-written by Ian Rustin and John Stebbins, talks a little bit about that. And uh, I got a little bit more information from Andrew Doe's uh, Bellagio10452.com, in which the person who booked the show was a known shyster. It was basically a take the money and run kind of thing. That's the long story brought down really short. There's more to it than that. But the fact is the Beach Boys didn't show up because they had no idea about it. <laughs> fun stuff, huh? Very, very fun. <laughs> but that was pretty much how April ended for the Beach Boys, aside from uh, Girl Don't Tell Me being recorded on April 30th, which was all Beach Boys. No, I don't think there was any Wrecking Crew. If there was Wrecking Crew, it was maybe... I, I don't remember off the top of my head. It was just like percussion or something. Maybe Ron Swallow. I'm not sure. But then going into May, you have, again, a lot more dates where the Beach Boys were in one place and Brian was in another. May 7th. Making some very, very wonderful music. Yeah, You're So Good to Me was recorded on May 7th while the Beach Boys were performing in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Bruce couldn't make that date, so Glenn Campbell filled in for them. In fact, Glenn was with them for several... Actually, yeah, Glenn Campbell is in for Bruce for several of those dates for whatever reason. And then May 29th, the Beach Boys had their second number one hit, Help Me Ron. Oh, yeah. Oh, and on May 16th, by the way, they were scheduled to appear on the Sullivan Show, but they got bumped. And they said, let's reschedule. We know that the they next time- They were rescheduled for what, 1968? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, could you guys come back in three years? <laughs> but yeah, Help Me Ronda went for, went to number one for- Two weeks, and the Beach Boys, that same day that helped me round and went to number one, they were at the Lagoon in Farmington, Utah, doing two concerts. The Lagoon, of course, being mentioned in Salt Lake City. I hope they performed Salt Lake City there. Yeah, right. That would be kind of stupid if they didn't. Yeah, right. Which but, tells me they probably didn't. And then there's not much in June. They must have... Oh, I disagree. June 4th? Well, okay, I mean, there's only a couple dates that we found activity for in June. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. No, June 4th was the vocal overdubs for California Girls. Of course, that was important. Which I believe was their eight-track tape debut. By eight-track yeah. tape, I mean a, a tape that has eight individual recording channels, and I don't mean the eight-track cartridge that was big in the 70s. So then, Summer Days, Summer Nights album came out on July 5th, which was less than four months since their previous album. Yeah, 
And we have a nice cover here. Who's missing, of course, the lead singer of the number one hit from the yeah, album. Yeah, like they couldn't wait for Al. <laughs> and there's Carl holding a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think there are some copies in which the picture is chopped in that place, so you can't really tell. But mm-hmm. on this copy I have, which was actually pressed in Canada, um, it's pretty clear. <laughs> I think the record was pressed in uh, Scranton, but it was actually distributed in Canada. But yeah, we got uh, Carl, Dennis, Brian, and Mike. And <laughs> Bruce is on the boat, but he's not in the picture, again, because he couldn't yet be photographed with the group. It's like, I mean, kind of think about this, like... I mean, I understand with you know, being under other, other contracts, of course, there were reasons why Bruce could not be photographed or be credited with things. But it's almost like for a couple months, like they had to just throw a blanket over him or something. Yeah, And what's interesting like, is he's like, loud and clear at the end of California of Girls. Wish they all could be California. Or like lock him in a bathroom until everybody else left. Yeah. You know, it's like... <laughs> we can't speak of Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> or he had to go hide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's like doorbell rings and it's Bruce and they have to slam the door in his face. <laughs> All right. Now, here's the question I have for you. A week later, California Girls was released, mm. which should have been a number one hit. Mm-hmm. Now, do we know what kept California Girls from being a number one hit? I know I've looked it up and it was something worthwhile. It wasn't better than California girls. Come on. I mean, as much as I love the Beatles, even the Beatles best stuff in that time was not better than California girls. (sighs) But yeah, we, so we have uh, July 12th was a big day because you have the California girls, let them run wild single released. Mm. They did a concert in Raleigh and now here is the beginning of pet sounds. The true beginning. Because that was the day that the Sloop John B backing track was recorded. Yep. So on the same day that a single where both sides were also major Pet Sound signposts. Yeah. So it's kind of like mark that date. Yeah. In fact, I took an informal poll on our Facebook group. What's your favorite song from 1965 by the Beach Boys? I think it was uh, Bill McAvoy, I think. If I got that wrong and it was somebody else, I apologize said, even though it's technically from Pet Sounds, because the backing track was recorded in 1965, I'm going to say Sloop John B. And I kind of thought somebody would go that route. Hmm. Because, man, this was the beginning of something huge, artistically. Something that we forgot to mention, because it wasn't in the notes, and I just remembered it now, but we'll say it since we're talking about the release of California Girls. Something that happened... That made that song possible oh, Back early, uh-huh. probably sometime in March, was when Brian had his first experience with LSD, Yep, which Brian himself has said that during that trip, he was thinking about Western things Yep, and kind of bum-ba-dee-da-dum-ba-dee-da, yep. and that was in his head, and that was the genesis of... What became California Girls? Mm-hmm. Mm. Of course, we all know the story about how. Actually, let me see. When when did they record the backing track of that? Like in April, I think. In April. Oh, if only there were a way to like search for the phrase "California Girls" in an electronic document. Yeah, April sixth. April sixth. Okay. Yeah. So April sixth, nineteen sixty-five. Let me check something here. So April that's why 6th. I said sometime in March. 
okay. may have been when he had that first LSD trip. Okay, yeah. The reason I was asking is because, according to Mike, while Brian was recording the backing track, Mike was out in the hallway of the studio writing down words for the song. And um, given that the day before they were doing a show in Anaheim, that's totally plausible. That's very, very mm-hmm. believable. 44 takes they had to do. <laughs> And the, here's the thing. They had 14 musicians, including Carl, on that recording. You have 14 people. That's 14 possibilities to make a mistake at any point. Well, so, and yeah. also, I mean, here is my guess. If this was music that was inspired by a psychedelic experience, Brian had something extremely specific in his head that he probably could not put down on paper. It was probably more like he needed to have it recorded, like he needed to actually have the musicians do it in order for him to say, this is right or this is wrong. Like he probably needed those takes to translate what he heard in his head. And I mean, I think this is just probably a lot of how Brian always worked, but because of a psych- the psychedelic part may have complicated things, where he had something very, very specific and needed to get it down. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. Well, the outtakes are there for the listening. He, there were a lot of mistakes being made. Well, that still too. <laughs> well, but were they mistakes or were they Brian not effectively? No, they were clearly... Oh, okay. They were clearly mistakes. But do you get what I'm saying, yeah, though? That like, Brian, people playing out a rhythm and Brian things. may not have barely been effectively communicating either, because it may have been hard for him to really articulate it in a way that people would understand. But don't lose the beat on the drums was hard to understand. <laughs> like, don't accidentally hit the wrong drum in this yeah. wrong place well, was hard okay, to understand. Fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that, <laughs> believe me, a lot of those were legitimate musical mistakes performance mistakes so then in the end of august even before then the end of july what july 29th dennis married carol freeman friedman pardon me and the reason i'm mentioning this you're like you might think okay yeah so dennis had his first of five marriages but (laughs) the thing is it just shows you what was going on in the lives of these young men because In addition to going out on the road, having to record, having to tour, having to promote themselves, go on TV, go on the radio, eat, sleep, and all this, yeah, other things going on, like they're getting married. Brian got married in the midst of all the craziness. Now it's Dennis's turn. And upon getting married, he was also a father Mm -hmm. because he adopted Scott Friedman. Friedman. I can't say their names. And the following year, I mean... Carl got married in 66. Yep. Mike's second marriage, I believe, was in 66. Or 67. Um, one of those years, so, yeah. Yeah. But starting in the end of August was work on the party album. Yep. You know, no rest for the weary in the studio. And which brings me another point is that at that point, Dennis was in the process of buying a house, too. We know that because he talks about it during the <laughs> sessions. And uh, I'm not sure if it's the 2600 Benedict Canyon house that he did move into. And that's crazy when you think about it. He was 20 years old and he was buying a house. Well, he was a 20-year-old, yeah. very wealthy person. Well, yeah, but still, it's like, man. all this running around on the road was paying off because they had hit records and they were making money on royalties and 
their concerts and all this stuff. So I he mean, couldn't even vote yet, and he was buying a house. I mean, for well, his wife and his, his well, it's like child. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw an article a couple of years ago about how um, Eve Plum had just sold a little Malibu beach house that she had purchased in like 1970 or 71 when she was like 12, I think 11 or 12. But with Brady Bunch money, she could afford to buy. It was like a pretty small, your traditional little Malibu beach cottage, not one of these palatial things, but more like the kind of house that most people in Malibu had and probably still have. So it may have been just kind of like her family's weekend home or something, but she was a little kid, but she could afford to buy a house because she was on a TV show mm-hmm. <laughs> and making a lot of money. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, age has nothing to do with it. Um, Still, when I was 20 years old, I was living with my parents. Yeah, you weren't, in a, <laughs> you weren't in a popular rock band that was giving the Beatles a run for their money, so... No, I was a junior in yeah. college. Anyway, they got into recording the party album, which, as we know, was kind of a really different concept. I mean, Capitol was pressuring Brian to put out a release to sell well at Christmas, just like they had the previous yep. year. So they came up with this kind of crazy idea to have something that was made to sound like it was pretty much like a jam session but and and i think it succeeds in that regard well yeah and especially because they did jam on some stuff in between yeah yeah what did i say recently off microphone yeah about how this i see it as this is their equivalent to the beatles get back sessions because they came into the party sessions with specific songs in Mm -hmm. mind that they were going to be doing and they also did kind of off stuff that was clearly unrehearsed, like Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could even hear Al or Carl playing Help in the background in yeah. a couple of places. Uh, but meanwhile, you had stuff that they were clearly rehearsed on, like Smokey Joe's Cafe, uh, Mountain of Love, which they did many takes of, Alley Oop, Holly Gully. I Can't Get No Satisfaction was uh, planned, it was obviously planned because they were nailing it. Of course, not everything ended up being released back then. It's yeah. released now. You can get it on mm-hmm. uh, the uh, what was it, Beach Boys Party Unplugged, Unmixed, or whatever they call it. And the thing that always kind of got me about this was the fact that they had they basically made fun of two of their own songs. Yes, I get around and Little Deuce Coop. Mm-hmm. And I know I've read somewhere kind of some praise for that. That in 1965. Most rock and roll bands took themselves way too seriously to do something like that. Or they didn't feel like they could do something like that, like goof on themselves. What was the exception? The Beatles. The Beatles. And the Beach Boys. The Beatles' 1965 Christmas record. Yep, the Beatles' third Christmas record, I think, was the official title of it. And this is total coincidence, because there's no way the Beach Boys would have been aware of because you know these records only went to fan club members, and America yeah. didn't even get most of them. Yeah, because I mean, they, by the they time they arrived, they, later. You know, yeah. So it's like it's not like they would have had any knowledge of this. But the yeah. 1965 Beatles Christmas record, in particular, their 
Well, I think they they may have had some uh, may have influential <laughs> substances oh, in there. May midst. have, yeah. Just, <laughs> but, just, it's just a remote possibility. But they were, yeah they they were kind of making up other words to uh, yesterday, to yesterday, and yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. So it's like, I mean, the Beatles felt comfortable enough to goof on themselves, and. The Beach Boys kind of did, too. So I think that's significant. And if you listen to the sessions, which thankfully you can legally now, you don't have to get the uh, Sea of Tunes set to hear this, I don't think. You can actually hear Carl and Mike both say, you know, I don't think we should be doing I Get Around. And I think Mike brings up the point that they had already released I Get Around on two previous albums. And Brian said, well, I understand what you're saying, but... I want to do it in kind of a a weird way, a one a kind of a goofy way, like if we do it real slow or some other way, just to kind of cool down off it or something. Yeah. <laughs> that was his his concept. He wanted to do something kind of offbeat like that. But there's a lot going on in those party sessions if you listen to them that tells you a lot of stories again about Dennis getting a house. There's one point where Carl's talking about the sun rays and he says something like, "Oh man, I heard I'm so happy for them." Around that time is when Carl set up the sun rays with Murray to work with. And apparently, like, things were starting to happen for them. Of course, they weren't a huge hit, but yeah. at least they were getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. And Carl was glad to know that something he was able to, to do for them was doing something. We have our first instance of Billy Hinchy on a recording because he played harmonica on Mountain of Love. Mm-hmm. Dennis played harmonica on a couple of songs, too. So there's a lot going on in that silly little album. So then in October, we didn't see any concerts, but there was more recordings, such as The Little Girl I Once Knew, some other tracks that were unreleased for a long time. And then on October 14th, there was a backing track called, well, it was labeled Untitled. Yeah. Then it was In My Childhood, uh-huh. which then became You Still Believe in Me. So, another Pet Sounds Genesis moment. Yeah. But then, on October 22nd and 23rd, we had the filming of two pretty significant television appearances. Yes. Because you had the Andy Williams show, which I find significant because of their performance of Their Hearts Were Full of Spring. Yes. I mean, it's easily findable on YouTube. And it's in the Beach Boys and American Band. Yeah, that too. But I mean, what I love about it is Brian looks so damn happy. Oh, yeah. It's like, this is his moment. This is his element. And they sound so good. Mm -hmm. They nail that beautifully. And then the next day... The Jack Benny Show. The Jack Benny Hour. Oh, the Jack Benny Hour. Jack Benny Show was a TV right. series that had just been canceled. The Jack Benny Hour. Okay. The Jack Benny Hour was a yeah. TV special. They did several TV specials. and Pardon beef. me. Jack Benny Program was the name of the TV sh- series. Yeah. Jack Benny Hour was this TV special. Okay, fine. So anyway, anyway, go ahead. So this is the sketch that we all know and love where the Beach Boys are singing California Girls and then Jack Benny and Bob Hope show up as... Two very, very... Middle-aged. Hodads. (laughs) And by the way, if if the version you're familiar with is the one from an American band, you're missing about half of it. They cut a lot There's a lot that was cut out, but 
it just kind of shows that the Peach Boys couldn't act. No. You really turn on, man. And also, Brian may have, uh, as they say, herbed up. He may have, yeah. He's kind of talking like out of his ear, practically. And he's looking at no one in particular when he talks. Yeah. I mean, the only one who really says lines with any any anything is Mike. Yeah. Mike does a good job, but the rest of them, nope, nope. It's like stick to singing, boys. Yeah, and later on in that program, they cut back to the Beach Boys, who did a live version of Barbara Ann. Which I found particularly interesting because, number one, that hadn't been out as a single yet. Yeah. And number two, their most recent album, Beach Boys Party, well, when was that released? Um, Party was released on November 8th, which was okay. five days after the Jack Benny Hour aired. And the thing is, There's No Other Like My Baby had been released or was about to be released as a B-side. So it's interesting that they chose what was at that point only going to be an album track. Mm-hmm. To perform at the very end of the special. Yeah. And something that I had read was that the reason that Capitol put that out as a single, Barbara Ann, was that radio DJs were playing it. But the Mm -hmm. thing is, unless they had preview copies of the album at this point, they wouldn't have even had the album to play it. Yeah. So I'm curious as to how that came about. Or if they had already been told, look, we're going to put Barbara Ann out as a single, so start plugging it. Could be. Could Could be. be. I don't know. But before we get to the party album release, we had um, a session on October 24th for The Little Girl I Once Knew. Yep. And then on November 1st, Trombone Dixie. Mm-hmm. Was it called Trombone Dixie? Or was that a name I, given to it later? No, I, I don't know when that name was applied to it. I just seem to remember that in the liner notes for the 1990 Pet Sound CD, it says that the phrase trombone Dixie was written on the tape box. Okay. So that may have been that may have been the working title yeah. of it. But Beach Boys Party came out on November 8th. Yeah, and before that happened is when the Jack Benny hour aired, yeah. as you said. And I put this in the notes for a reason. It was sponsored by Eastern Airlines. Mm. And um what recently came about on YouTube, somebody found an Eastern Airlines commercial from 1971. That has about three seconds of the Beach Boys in Brian's home studio in the middle of a session. You can Hmm. see Brian off in the corner and Bruce says a a quick one-liner. I don't remember what he Hmm. said, but it's on YouTube. I'll link it. I think it's free out here and makes the Beach Boys sing about being free. Interesting. So that's kind of why I put that on there. It was like kind of predicting there Hmm. what was about to happen. And interestingly, the Jack Benny Hour preempted Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater. (laughs) So people who were disappointed not to see Bob Hope well, ended up seeing they were Bob still Hope anyway. Be, see Bob yeah. Hope anyway, and then another Pet Sounds moment on November seventeenth, the track "Run James Run," which yep. later became Pet Sounds, was recorded. Yep. It was called "Run James Run" because it was supposed to be James Bond music. Mm-hmm. I know there was a video, uh, some some uh, James Bond YouTube channel. Somebody posted a video of James Bond themes that never happened. He had Run James Run slash Pet Sounds as the unused theme from You Only Live Twice. Hmm. I don't think it would have been a theme. I think it just would have been background music, incidental music, because it's there's no vocal. It doesn't well, have the vibe of a James sa- Bond theme. Who says that? I mean, we've never heard of any lyrics, but who says that that couldn't have happened? 
or Brian may have put it out to the universe as like, maybe if he had gotten more encouragement, maybe he would have made lyrics for it. Could have been, but the fact that it was called Run James Run kind of tells me that it might have been thought of as maybe background for an action scene. Whatever the case, Brian has said in concert before, yeah, I sent this to the James Bond people, but they didn't want to use it. I don't think he ever did. (laughs) I really doubt he did. That's all I had to say about that, but it's a great piece. I love it, and I learned how to play it, and I've forgotten how to play it since. November 22nd, The Little Girl I Once Knew. Yep, that was Another Pet Sound signpost. With There's No Other Like My Baby on the B-side, and uh, wow, and um, doing the math here, 41 years later, this hand that I'm pointing to made physical (laughs) contact with the producer- composer, performer of that song. He said my name. Yeah. Uh, Listen to an earlier episode for the story about that. He said my name. Sometime around (laughs) here, we don't know an exact date. We know that a troop of Girl Scouts visited Capitol Records because there's a picture of Brian outside the Capitol Studios in the hallway with a crowd of Girl Scouts. And And all these lucky little girls are holding copies of the little girl I once knew. (laughs) Yeah, for the longest time, like, I thought it was Brian was in the middle of a session. I'm thinking, okay, if that's November 1965, he must have been recording Run James Run Pet Sounds. But no, because that he did all his recording at Western during that time. Uh, I don't think he was ever at Capitol around November doing a session. And and just to show our level of hopelessness at this point yeah we realized the photo with the little girls you can clearly see a sign for recording studio a yeah the studios at western are numbered yeah why do we know this (laughs) i don't know what is wrong with us (laughs) i do know that at gold star and capital the studios were identified by letter so that was probably capital because why the hell else would there be a whole crap ton of uh copies of the little girl i once knew on hand it could be i mean my guess is that one of the parents of the one of those little girls maybe worked at capital or had some kind of connection to capital that they were able to come in and take a little tour or something and either brian happened to be at capital for some business that day and they said hey why don't you go say hi to these little girl scouts or maybe it was arranged somehow i'll bet it was Um, arranged it was an arranged photo op probably yeah but i mean but i'm saying brian may have already had business in the building and they said hey while you're here take a moment to meet this these little and i mean the that one girl with the braces oh my god it's like <laughs> it's like you can feel their joy yeah and i am so envious of all of them mm-hmm. <laughs> when i was in girl scouts the coolest thing we did was take a behind the scenes tour at a carvel ice cream shop <laughs> well, that's pretty cool yeah but not as cool as meeting brian wilson and pro- getting a free you probably, record you probably got ice cream though ice cream's always awesome uh, yeah but yeah but still But yeah, November was loaded up with concerts, or at least the the second half of November was loaded up with concerts for the non-Brian Beach Boys. And uh, going into December, still some more concerts. Uh, We had, oh, there was still some concerts. Well, actually, December 4th was really their last concert date for a while, really. December 20th, Barbara Ann, backed with Girl Don't Tell Me, was released as a single. And here's where I want to do what might be some myth-busting. Common lore is that the reason that the little girl I once knew peaked at 
either 25 or 20, I don't remember for sure, and then suddenly dropped off the charts. People say, oh, it's because of those stops in the middle of the song. Well, I don't know, because there are some other people who remember from back then when The Little Girl I Once Knew came out, and it was going up the charts pretty much as fast as any other big Beach Boys hit was at the time. But what put the kibosh on it, though? Barbara Barbara Ann. Ann. Less than a month later, Capitol told everybody, push this record instead. Yeah. And, yeah. Which worked, because it went to number two. Went to number two. (laughs) Cashbox had it at number one. Yeah. And then December 22nd, we have the, uh, well, 22nd and 29th, uh, there are sessions for Sloop John B., which probably was what they were working on in... uh, There's a couple photos of Brian behind the board at Western, and you can clearly see a carton of eggnog on the desk. So it probably was either right before or right after Christmas that they were maybe having a little bit of a holiday, a little holiday mood in the studio. Now, there's an interesting story that's been told about the 12-string overdub with Billy Strange. Now, according to Billy Strange, Brian called him on a Sunday and said, hey, I on that uh, recording of Sloop John B. I did, I want a 12-string on that. Can you meet me at the studio? And uh, Billy told him, well, I don't have a 12-string. <laughs> so basically, the music store that Brian, that Brian went to, they were closed because it was Sunday. So he called the owner. The owner opened it up for him, and uh, Brian bought Billy a Fender 12 and a twin reverb amp, also a Fender. That is likely incorrect. Number one, because neither of these overdub dates, the 22nd and 29th, those were not Sundays. And uh, Billy Strange said it happened right after Christmas, which would have been, I think, December 26th was a Sunday. And also, what makes that story not quite believable is that Billy had actually performed an electric 12-string in a previous session for Brian earlier in the year. So there could be different things going on. It could be that... Maybe Billy wasn't able to bring his 12-string for whatever reason. It might have been that he was remembering somebody else buying him the 12-string at some other time. But whatever the case, it was just an interesting story. And uh, yeah, I want to send a shout-out to Jocelyn Hoisington for uh, clarifying that. She's like, yeah, that story doesn't really add up. <laughs> but that was just it's some Sloop John B. myth. Oh, while I'm thinking about it, some other Sloop John B. myth-busting I want to do now. Uh, something that was talked about a lot was that supposedly the Beach Boys recorded Sloop John B., a version of it, during the party sessions. I think ever since the Sea of Tunes unsurpassed masters series came out suddenly there was no more talk about that because there was no sloop john b in those tapes i think what it was one of the times when somebody started playing ticket to ride on the acoustic 12 string there was something that sounded a little bit like the 12 string and sloop john b during ticket to ride but that's that was just totally (laughs) coincidental that's my theory anyway We still have a lot to talk about, about 1965. Oh, no, we don't, because it's almost the end of the month. (laughs) The end of the year. End of the year. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, the year ended with three concerts on the 29th, 30th, and 31th. So why did we spend so much time on 1965? Well, because it was a pivotal year. It was a transitional year for the band. And, I mean, okay, Neither of us were around in 1965. We weren't born for quite a few years yet. So our only knowledge of 1965 is historical perspective. 
And I mean, I could totally be wrong. And people who were actually there may throw things at their listening device. (laughs) But I mean, it just feels to me that 1965 is when the 60s really got going. Yeah. Where, because if you look at in terms of music, fashion, a lot of other things, before 1965, it felt like there were still too many things of the 50s yeah, hanging around. Yeah. There was change, don't get me wrong. Absolutely. There was definite change, but it still felt like the 50s were lingering too much. And 1965 really felt like that started to shed. I think the Beatles were a big part of that. Like the Beatles coming in that really changed music, fashion, advertising. I mean, you just look at um, the Ed Sullivan shows that were aired in 64. The ads were all adults. There were no children, no young people at all. At least not being marketed to. In any of the ad. Well, the advertisements were all featuring adults and targeted towards adults. But you look at the episode from um, that aired in September of 65, the ads had a lot more young people Mm -hmm. that had more, not real rock and roll, but at least rock and roll flavored music. They were having a twist party, weren't they? (laughs) And even like Barbie dolls, okay? If you look at the Barbie dolls that were out up until 1965, Barbie was very mature and sophisticated. But starting 65, 66, the dolls started looking a lot younger. And instead of having like a ponytail hairstyle with curled bangs, it was long, straight hair. The clothes became a lot more colorful and less um, tailored and more mod styles. I think 1965 is when the door started opening to a lot more change. Mm-hmm. That's also when the miniskirt, when Mary Quant's designs in London really started joining the mainstream. Yeah. And skirt lengths started to go higher and higher. And just other things that were coming about in the 60s politically, socially. Mm-hmm. I think there were you were starting to see a lot of shifts take hold. But the Beach Boys, it's more like, you know, change was in the air. I mean, it's not like they were like, oh, it's 1965. We must do things differently. It's more like... It was a natural change. It was organic. Or just kind of maybe people just started feeling empowered to, hey, let's let's do some things differently. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Brian, (laughs) in the beginning of 1965, he said, hey, I want to quit the road and stay at home and work on our music. When did the Beatles do the same thing? Around 66. Yeah, August of 66 is when they... Yeah, and this is another myth-busting thing I want to talk about, because I had heard... Re- I think it was on the Ceylon podcast. They didn't They didn't say this as official. I think it was more like just hearsay. Supposedly, the Beatles had visited the Beach Boys backstage at a show in Portland, and uh, I think John said, hey, where's Brian? And Carl said, oh, Brian doesn't tour with us anymore. He stays home to focus on recording in the studio. And John turned to Paul and said, that's a good idea. <laughs> and I was looking to see what show that might have been. I could not find any instance in which the Beach Boys and the Beatles were both in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> at the same time ever. So, I don't know. 
But one thing I also want to say before we wrap up our discussion about 1965, this is a plea to everybody listening here who can help out a friend. A friend of ours who has been a big Beach Boys fan since he heard Don't Worry Baby in 1964. He grew up in New Haven, either still or again lives in New Haven to this day. He went to the Beach Boys concert on May 15th, 1965 in New Haven. Glenn Campbell is in instead of Bruce Johnston. And if I remember what our friend David told us was that he didn't know that Brian wasn't on the road with them. That was a surprise seeing Glenn Campbell there. But during that time, the Beach Boys would give Glenn a little solo spot during the show. One person said, yeah, I went to a show during that tour. He took out a banjo and he sang Dang Me. Another person said, yeah, I remember he did Foggy Mountain Breakdown. David does not clearly remember what Glenn did, but he said, as far as I'm concerned, and this is what I'm going to stick with until somebody proves to me otherwise, the night that I saw him, he did Guess I'm Dumb. Hmm. Which could be plausible that maybe he sang it to a backing track or something, because I can't imagine the Beach Boys being able to no. perform that or, no. or, he, or, or something, but... The song would have been released about two weeks later. Hmm. So it's theoretically plausible that it could have happened. But if anybody knows for 100% sure what Glenn did in New Haven on May 15th, 1965, let us know. Hit us up on the social medias or through email. Uh, you listen to the end of the show, you'll hear how to reach us. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else we need to talk about here? No, I think that's... That's a lot that yeah, we've talked about. That is a lot. Yeah, this is probably going to be <laughs> one. We we spent a lot of time putting this together too. A lot of pre-show yeah. discussions. Should we so. share our notes with people? Why not? Okay, yeah, we'll put that up on our show what, notes our page. Twenty-four page document. Yeah, that we just typed up really, really fast, and all this, and just went yeah, back and forth. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Some of this came from Andrew Doe's site. Some of it came from uh, the John Stebbins and Ian uh, Rustin uh, in concert book. Some came from other sources as well. We'll link yeah. though. In fact, many of them are actually already linked in the resources link on our homepage at tunex.fat4it.com. But anyway, yeah. um, we'll call it a, do you think we should call it a episode at this point? Sure. Let's okay. do that. And we'll come back with this topic. Oh, we don't know yet. Yeah, we we have no idea what yeah. we're talking about. Maybe, next. maybe we'll finally get around to talking about the uh, sail on sailor box. Maybe we won't. <laughs> but we'll come. We always have something to talk about. That's right. But anyway, it's Sean and Lisa. And bye. Thank you for listening to the Tune X podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and just about every other provider out there. If TuneX isn't on your favorite provider, please let us know. You can email us at tunexpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the show notes, is tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B, then the number four, then I-T. Feel free to connect with us on social media. TuneX is on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, both under the handle of TuneX Podcast. Our opening and closing theme, Melody 10, was written and performed by Scattered Frog. All other music and sounds used in this episode remain the properties of their respective copyright holders and are used for the purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. We'll see you next time, friends. Until then, don't, don't back, back down, down from, from that, that wave. wave.